0: Thank you. The series we're going through is Hope in the Messiah. And so we have an opportunity to see what Christ has given us through um, the Old Testament prophecies. This morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9, but we're going to look at all the light, a lot of the light verses in, in the New Testament this morning too. We're also going to look at Ecclesiastes as well. That's going to be the first passage. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, so so we get there, um, so we bring the message this morning. We have a propensity to wander, don't we? We have what we think we should do, and we have what we know we should do, and a lot of times we do what we think we should do, and that's not lined up with what we, what we should know we should do, Right? It's like a wanderlust. At least I do. I get a wanderlust in my in my life, and I will go right to the edge with it. I will take it as far as I possibly can and see how close I can get without sinning. Uh, it's kind of like the price is light, right? How close can I get without going over, kind of thing? And there's far too many times where I do just wander right over the edge, right? And we see we see what it's out there, and I want to see what. If there's something new, if there's something more, and that's what we get caught up in, I think today, with the way social media pushes us, with the way um, our careers and our job push us, what's next? Even even as the church, I'm always asking, "What's next? What what do I do next?" Um, not necessarily to make Jesus more attractive, but to make sure that I'm out in front of the. The game sometimes. And sometimes that's good, but it can go too far, right? Like our um, live video, we are struggling with that, so we set up a phone and get it get it going, right? Uh, it's nice to get for the others that are at home, but it's also you don't want to make it too much and too big. So as we want to see what's out there, we tend to develop a longing in our heart. And sometimes, it's really, it's already there. Um, if you're not a Christ follower, we all have a longing in our heart. And I think Christ is the one that fills it. But when we start to, maybe like I was praying before, put ourselves and become the tyrant of our heart, that longing grows. And we are, when we are not content with what he has given us, we start to look we go wandering. We, like sheep, have all gone astray. And we experiment, and we end up lost. We think we found grass that's greener on the other side. Well, really, it's been down this this dark valley that we don't know how to get out of. And now when we look back up, we're not really sure how we're going to get out. And so we ask the Savior for his help. We get lost in self-pleasure that it really never satisfies. It's got to be more and more and more. It's like drugs if you've ever gotten hooked on any kind of drug. One's not enough. You've got to have a little bit more next time and a little bit more in the middle of more. And sometimes I think you can even make the case for that for, for Jesus when you really get into the zone of, of growing in your faith. He, you can desire him more and more like that too. But the nice thing about Christ is he is a lasting contentment, and will sustain over time. So, as we get lost in these self-pleasures, we we look to the wave of the new thing on the market, and you always see this time of year, well, what's going to be the hot toy? What's going to be the one that my grandkids are going to want? Or What, what are people getting? And we have to have that one thing. And... Or we get lost in the go, the push, push, push. We want to get the next thing. Uh, we got to get our shopping done. We got to get the family thing done. We got to get the cookies made. We got to get the meal made. And we have to, we have to. And we get caught up in the rush. Well, that's one good thing that's come out of COVID, This, I really think. It's taken a lot of rush out, hasn't it? It's taken a lot of the, the go and we got to be somewhere and we got to do some things and we got to, and we got to, and we're left with ourselves. And when we examine ourselves, when we slow down and really examine ourselves, we find a darkness there that can only be extinguished by the true light, by the true Savior, and when we set down the I got to get mine attitude, we have an excitement there that, that can go along with that. So the problem this morning is we see it, is we could we could live for so much more, but we've lost ourselves in the desires of this world, slightly quoting a Switchfoot song there, um, We could live for so much more, but we've lost ourselves in the desires of the world. And just at the right time, God steps down into the darkness and brings us his glorious light. And if you look at the rat race that has gone on over time for humanity, I think King Solomon sums it up. It's the wise teacher, but I'm pretty sure it's King Solomon. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verses 8 through 11. He points us to a pattern that is old as mankind itself. As soon as we fell, we fell into this pattern. And you can see it throughout the Old Testament as we walk away from the Lord and we walk toward ourselves, we walk toward evil, and only Christ can cleanse us from that evil heart. And verse 8 reads like this through 11. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are never content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past and. And in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. I'm just glad we've learned. You know, we've got the internet now. We've got history books. I'm glad we don't change the history in our classrooms. Oh, boy. Right? The winning side gets to write history. Have you ever heard that quote before? I can I don't know who wrote it. Seems like some general. Uh, the the winning side gets the right to history. And history's good to know. But as I've learned as a kid, knowing's only half the battle, right? If G.I. Joe cartoons taught me one thing, that's definitely what they taught me. Go Joe, right? Knowing's half the battle. Right, you gotta have your intelligence, you gotta know your history, you gotta know where we came from, we gotta know our Bible, but that's only half the battle. We gotta put that into practice. And if we aren't willing to walk in the light as he is in the light, then we are just a burning ember that's gonna go out. We're separated from the fire. Right? We need to be in the fire and in the flame, and then our our coal, our ember can burn brightly. So, what is man to do? How are we to break this pattern? Well, I got news for you. We don't. God did. Right? God is the one who, came, who can and did change the course of man's life. This is what Christmas is all about. Hope in the Messiah. Man is destined for destruction, and God steps in. We see this happen a lot in the Old Testament. Here are three examples. Adam and Eve, when they sin, it's called original sin. And we talked about this a few weeks ago where I declared that, well, I think I could have done better and we all decided that Shane is not going to be our best candidate for our new Adam, right? Did you know that Jesus is called the new Adam? It's called that in Hebrews. Um, praise God that he came and fulfilled that because... I don't measure up. You can ask Brandy this week. I did not measure up at all. Um, God promises to save the world through the offspring of Eve. This is the sec- second example, right? And what does Eve's offspring do? The first time we have brother, two brothers, one of them tries to kill the other one, and he wasn't the good one. Cain was the bad one, right? So the one that had maybe a chance for hope of the nations, well, he's dead now. What are we going to do? Well, unfortunately, Adam and Eve had more kids because otherwise we'd have been stuck as Cain's descendants. And I think the flood would have came a lot faster if that were the case. So already Satan is at work trying to kill Eve's offspring, because if you can eliminate them now, you've won, right? God puts a mark on Cain, and Jesus's line doesn't come through Cain, but it always gives you an opportunity. If you're going to have to fall back on somebody, you can fall back on Cain's line. He doesn't, but he it gives an opportunity because he's marked. If you kill him, you're you're in big trouble, right? Then we have Noah. Noah's actually my second example. God has to clear the earth because man can only think of evil all the time. That's why he clears the seven tribes out before Israel goes in. And Israel, we know, they fall and they do the exact same things as the seven tribes that do before him. Satan has not stopped working, folks. He is on this earth. He knows all the tricks. He doesn't do anything new. There's nothing new from man. There's nothing new from Satan because Satan can't do anything new that the Creator hasn't created. Think about that. Satan is created, right? He can't come up with an original idea, he only does what he's designed to do. Same with us. We, we think we're so creative. But well, there's nothing new under the sun. Hmm. Good old positive Ecclesiastes there, right? <laughs> but what can we do? What we, anything worth doing is worth doing well, right? And so if we're going to please our Savior, we need to do that well as well. So as we walk down this dark hole as we've started... God picks these people of Noah and he decides that he's going to wipe out the earth and start over. And and Noah gets off on the right foot, right? He never sins after that. Oh, wait, yes, he does. Which points us to know that God is our Savior, not Noah, not Adam, not King David. God does promise King David some pretty amazing things as well. And David's family does well for about a half a generation. He gets halfway through Solomon, and it just goes downhill. And then it comes up and then down and up and down and up and down and up and down until it just goes down. And We get to this King Ahaz that we see in Isaiah that the prophecy of chapter 7 is written about. He says, hey, I will give you a sign Ahaz, and he says, I won't test God like that. And he says, you will have a virgin, will be with child, and you will have it, it will come in the, in the future here. And it comes almost 600 some odd years later from that. Pretty amazing. So David's family falls hard. And falls far away from the Lord. But God promised something through David's line. And if you look at that, the next king after Ahaz is Hezekiah. Hezekiah, a lot of people believe that he was a prophet as well as a king. The people have walked away from the Lord so much that he had to bring in somebody that could kind of correct the government and the religious people of the time. I think there's speculation out there and it kind of seems a little bit like it's got a little bit of credibility, but I don't know. This is just from what I've done in research that King Hezekiah understood that we are in a fallen family line and if I have kids, we're going to turn away from the Lord so I'm not going to have any kids. And so he doesn't have kids to way late in his life, and he, the kid that he has turns out to be a very wicked king from two pretty, pretty good parents. A lot of people believe, or I'm pretty sure it says that Hezekiah married Isaiah's daughter. I know it does in, in Jewish writings, so I studied that, and so you would think, well, with, you got Isaiah's daughter and King Hezekiah, you can't really go wrong, but he does. He goes way wrong. You see that flip-flopping back and forth when, when that tyranny of self comes to the top and I'm going to be my own ruler instead of letting God rule or in us would let Christ rule. So we're in trouble. So what's man to do? The Old Testament shows us man can't do anything. Man will always fall short. Man will always be enticed by worldly pleasures. I know that. I'm enticed every day. Every day, if I don't put Christ first in my life, I will fall short every time. And we just slide down the hill, and Satan's waiting for us to just fall off that cliff, isn't he? Just give up. Just quit. Just don't do it anymore. But God doesn't leave us like that. God doesn't leave us like that. He offers us a lifeline. And his son, Jesus. And he says, he will keep us from falling if we put our stake in the ground and turn to him for the rescue. All right. Well, problem is, man can't even do that these days. We have a hard time with dying to self, taking up our cross and following him. We're so off course and we're free falling into sin. And we really are in a hopeless state today. But even now, in the free fall, God extends that line, doesn't he? As long as we have life, as long as we're alive and breathing, Christ can come and change our hearts and can allow us into heaven as a result. At just the right time, God steps down into the darkness and brings his wonderful life. One of these hopeless times that we see as a prophet size was King Ahaz. He was the king of Judah. That's the line of David. They should have been legit. They should have been good. They weren't. And just as we might drift off in despair, God promises the virgin birth through a very heated Isaiah, I would say. I'd say he was pretty... Pretty when he said that. And he comes on with another prophecy in the Messiah. We read this in Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, I'm le- reading out of the, the red ones on the pew Bibles, if you see there. It's kind of right there in the center. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Now, I will warn you that this is mostly a second coming prophecy. But there are some uh, laces of first coming prophecy. I, I can think of two specifically that I'm going to be talking about this morning. So Isaiah chapter 9 is really a continuation of Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. It just keeps going. Isaiah really goes on into 10. You kind of see how it it, it rolls all together. And so sometimes the Old Testament is a little hard to figure out where the breaks go, but... Um, 8 is the fulfillment of 7 and set and it rolls in right into 9 here. It says nevertheless that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when the when Galilee of the Gentiles which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea will be filled with glory. Now a couple of weeks ago I said he will be called a Nazarene is what Matthew said. He may have been referring to this passage as well, because Nazareth is in Galilee. Okay, so he just got a little bit more specific in his region. That was one that I missed a couple of weeks ago I wanted to mention. Verse two, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light for those who live in a land of deep darkness of a light will shine. This is speaking when Christ was on his earthly ministry. So that's one prophecy we'll talk about a little bit this morning. We will endure, we will enlarge the nation of Israel and his people will rejoice, and they will rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder, which I believe is a second coming prophecy you will break the yoke of slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. That's both because you got um, a burden of sin lifted off from the first when he died on the cross. And the second one will be be lifted off for all time. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. And this specifically is when Christ was born on the earth. And the government will, be rest, will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Whoa. Is it gonna happen? I think so. Okay. One thing about Isaiah that's really kind of neat, he probably gets the most specific out of all the prophecies. Daniel gets pretty specific as well in the in a timeline, but Isaiah gets very um. One of the one of the best authors of the Hebrew language, and so he can get he can get very specific in that, and I, I'm pretty encouraged by by this. I also think from about uh, the half halfway through verse six and then seven, a lot of that has to do with the second coming. Okay, now when it comes to prophecy, a lot of times the prophecy is fulfilled in that timeline. It's fulfilled in the, first prov- in the first coming of Jesus, and it's fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus, okay? So that's one nice thing, I think, about man repeating itself over and over and over. It gives opportunity for that prophecy to be fulfilled in several different ways. And so when I look at prophecy, I always say, okay, does it meet the immediate need? Like, for example, Revelation. Revelation is a good example. Revelation, if you look at Revelation and you look at the prophecy, well, you can say, well, that was for the fall of Rome. When Rome came and sacked Jerusalem, I mean. When it it sacked Jerusalem and and destroyed Jerusalem, that's what that is a prophecy for. Well, if you look at the symbolism and stuff, yeah, it is. But it's also when God's going to come back and sack Rome too, right? Right? And so it goes from a timeline that happened close, but it also is one that's going to happen in the future. And you see that through many prophecies in the, the Bible. It will point to the, both first and second coming, okay? So that is my philosophy of how I look at a lot of prophecies. Does it fit this timeline? Does it fit the first coming timeline? Does it fit the second time Timeline? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. And then, then it's up to the sermon of figuring out how do they work. So we got a doozy of a prof- prophecy here, don't we? We got um, some authority being thrown down, and I would say, I don't. I don't really feel like Isaiah's being nice about this. I wonder if his voice is raised, especially during the virgin birth proclamation. I think he probably gave that with some anger, some righteous anger, because the Messiah, he said, you could, you could ask God of a sign. He will show up visibly for you, and you reject him. You refuse him. But how much do we do that every time on ourselves when we sin? So the evidence of the solution this morning, this is the problem. We've walked through the problem of man sinning, haven't we? We see that we can't be good enough to get to heaven. We need a Savior. So the evidence of a solution comes in our darkest time. It comes in our darkest hour. Right? When does light seem to be the brightest? It's dark. It's dark. If we were to shut all the lights off in here, and I know if you do this up in the youth room, it works well, even with, with uh, light coming in through the sides. But when we were back before we had new windows, we used to have the, the windows really darkened out. And so I shut out all the lights in the youth room. And I took my watch light, the little Indiglo, and I turned it on. And you could see people's faces from an glow watch light, right? So when's God going to show himself? In a dark time, right? We see these cultures all clashing together, and God shows up. When does Jesus ask Peter, who do they say that I am? Some say this, some say this. Who do you say that I am? Well, you're Messiah, Christ, Messiah. When does he ask that? He's standing on the top of a mountain looking down at uh, Caesarea Philippi. Well, that's not a Jewish town. That's a Roman town, and there's debauchery and witchcraft and sexual immorality all happening right there. So when's, he gonna, when's Peter going to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah? When he sees the darkness and he sees the light. I got it. Boom. Peter can even, even Peter can figure that one out. And it was bold enough to proclaim it. And he was right in saying so. Right? So there's some wonderful things happening. What are some of the wonderful things that have happened? We have John the Baptist's birth. The people say, we're going to watch this guy. Because of what happened to his father, Zachariah, He was mute. Now he can speak. Something special about this kid. So there's already some flags going on, some things. We're going to watch this kid as he grew up. This is about right for the time for the Messiah to be here. And John the Baptist says, I am not the Messiah, but I've come to proclaim that he is coming. And so the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Unlike my poor little Indiglo, Christ never burns out, does he? If you ever ever get down, you ever get to hopelessness, Christ always brings hope. He always can lift us up. Darkness has no power over light. So take heart. We know that God knows what he's doing. Things may look bad, they may look grim, but all of these things must pass but the things that are of him. That's a Rich Mullen song. I got like four of them I could have quoted so far already in this. Every time I look, I've just been enamored by Rich again lately, uh, especially on this Christmas season. So we must keep hope alive. Right? We have a responsibility as Christ followers to keep hope alive. When we are focused on Christ, it is easy. It's easy to make the right calls. It's easy to to know God's will. It's easy to walk in there. When we take our eyes off of Christ and we kind of rest on our laurels a little bit, that's when we get in trouble. Not even I would say we even could do better walking against Christ. Because at least we know that's wrong. But when we kind of try to justify our behaviors, that's when we get in trouble. That's when we can really stray away. Because we drift away and then we stray, and sometimes we can't find that line back. When you just turn 180 degrees and go against Christ, one, you know where he's at, and two, you know what you're doing is wrong, right? It's like defiance against your parents. You're like, no, I won't do that. Well, you know that was wrong. <laughs> There's consequences. They'll correct that real quick, right? So we must keep hope alive. And what's this hope? It's in, We find this hope in 1 John chapter 1, 5 through 7. This is the message that we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you that God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. So we are light. Our lying, if we say we have fellowship with God, but are living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Praise God for that hope. Praise God for that everlasting promise of his son that died on the cross and rose three days later and defeated my sin, your sin, the world's sin on the cross for all time. It's another interesting thing about time where God has to have this timeline, but when he defeats sin, he defeats it forever. It's kind of like he bursts out. And it's like, I'm not bound by time anymore. Maybe he wasn't. And you see that picture in Revelation in the first few chapters there. In the first one, really, where the land who was slain beats sin for all time. So does Jesus know dark times? Does he know hopelessness? I really think he does. I believe that he had to overcome those things when his father turned his face away from Jesus. When he was on the cross and God separated himself because Jesus had the sin of the world and he had to bear that on himself, he probably knew more hopelessness than we'll ever, ever comprehend. He probably knew more wickedness than in that moment than we will ever know. And I think that moment it building up all his life for, he wasn't like thrilled to go through it either. He says, Lord, take this burden away from me, but if not my will, but your will be done. And God said, this is the way it's got to be done. And Jesus says, well, then I will follow your will. God presents that same thing to us. This is the way my will needs to be done. Lord, I don't, I don't want to do it that way. But not my will, your will be done. It's what we have to say every day and surrender. And at just the right time, God steps down in the darkness and brings us His glorious light. And Jesus overcame that sin. You might be say, or you might have heard someone say, "Well, Pastor, I'm a good person. I don't deserve to go to hell." Well, you're wrong. I'm sorry. Sometimes I can be blunt. Maybe that maybe I should slow that down. Well, you might want to examine yourself there. No, you're wrong. We're all wrong, right? If we try to do it ourselves, we can't do it. We can never be good enough. Well, why can't we be good enough? Because sin came into this world and it creeps into our hearts. And God has to be separated from sin. Right? So any any little bit of sin is not big enough. It's not. It's We can't be in God's presence with that sin, can we? So God had to create a solution. How can I get these people back to me? And he could have stopped right there with Adam and Eve and said, I can't, and wiped them out. But he didn't do that, did he? He didn't do that. When sin entered the equation, he did not wipe out mankind to to save him of all this pain and all this suffering. He gave us hope. He kept hope in the Messiah, he gives it to Adam and Eve. And he proclaims, you will have a descendant that will rise up. And that descendant we know is Jesus Christ. You might say, yes, I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. I caution you this line of thinking because the First John passage continues on. It says, if we claim to be without sin... We are only fueling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. NIV says all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar, and that never worked out for anybody, showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So if we call God, God a liar by saying, "Oh, well, I'm I'm good enough. I'm I'm not." Well, I never said I was good enough. I well, I just said I was a good person. Well, when we have just a little bit of sin, we we need saving. We need something besides ourselves. And God has that in our lives. So God intervenes with his son born of a virgin like we talked last week, he was part man, part God. Then as, a, as the perfect judge of mankind. Oh, I've asked, I asked myself, what would it take to be the perfect judge for man? I, I already kind of know that I couldn't do it. I've watched uh, enough movies to see that I'm not infinite, and I've seen enough and my character to know that I will always fall short, so I can't do it, and I feel like I'm better than the average bear, but I fall short, so i need I need a savior, but what would I have him do to be the perfect savior to be the perfect judge? Well, I think I would have he would have to walk a mile in my shoes, so he'd probably have to be and know what I go through. He would have to know the pain and the suffering and the hurt. And he would, have to, he would need to face the temptations of this life and stay surrendered to God and not fall prey to those temptations. He would need to have God as his authority because ultimately God set the rules and so he needs to set the the standard there as well, and he would need to be loving, compassionate, full of knowledge and truth. I would think he would want—I'd want him to be patient and kind. All the other fruit of the spirits, so I would—I would I would say he would need that. Couldn't—couldn't. Couldn't, ideally, wouldn't have sin in his life after he's faced all those things. And as I've studied the life of Jesus, I find the kind of person I want to judge me. That looks at a woman who is caught in the middle of adultery, probably naked in front of everybody. And he says, he who has no sin cast the first stone. And they all leave. And he's there and he could condemn her because he's sinless. And he says, woman, where are all your accusers? And he says, she says, they're, they're not to be found, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Does Christ have the right to condemn there? Absolutely does, right? But he chooses first to come conquer sin, not to judge Right? That's important to know about Christ. He came to conquer sin, not to judge. He will judge. He will be our judge. He is our judge. And he, it's important, he says, go and sin no more. He doesn't say, oh, go about your lifestyle. Oh, it's okay. I understand your circumstances. Oh, yeah, life is giving you a, a hard time. No, it says, go And sin no more. We, as a church, have an opportunity to reach out to people with compassion, with grace, full of love, with the truth. Right? If we know the truth well, we need to wield it with compassion, not with a heavy hand. If we know how to give grace well, We need to remember it's bound with the truth. We look at Christ and how he's brought those together. He's done well. In conclusion, many of us know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We also know 3.17 a lot of times. It says, Uh, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn or to judge the world, but to save the world through him. That is pretty exciting. That's what O Holy Night is all about. That thrill of hope. What? He didn't come to condemn me? He came to love me? He came to fill my heart with joy? To give me a peace that passes understanding? Jesse and I were were talking about, she was challenging me. Why don't we talk about the joy more often? That's our secret weapon. She didn't say that part, but it is. That's exactly what uh, Out of the Salt Shaker's been talking about, too. Why don't we talk about the joy? Why don't we talk about the lack of anxiety when we have Christ in the front of our life? He is, He's the answer. To the question, there's no... That passage continues on, John 3, 16, 18-21. It says, There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him already has been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. We are under God's wrath until we choose to come out of it, okay? We are judged to condemnation until Christ gets a hold of our hearts and changes us, and then we stand in as one of his child. Then, I believe, that's the point of predestination. He has a will. This is where you're going, Shane. This is what you're going to do. This is what I have, because you chose me. Until we choose Christ and we surrender and put him on top of that podium and us way down low, surrendered, bow before him because he has rescued us from our sin and he's rescued us from the present evil age. Then Christ says, this is the steps that I have. That's my personal look on it. I can can back it up with scripture, but... Other people people can back other things up with scriptures too. So Uh, that's just, that's your pastor right there. For this, the judgment is based on this fact. Or as it says in the NIV, this is the verdict. God's light has come into the world, but people love darkness more than light for their actions were evil. All who... Do evil, hate the light, and refuse to go near, for the fear of sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come into the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. We are the beacons of light. That's why when we have Christmas Eve service, we remind with the candle lighting that we are the light sent out into the world. Out into the darkness. It's pretty amazing. Turn to the light. He knows how to break the power of sin and darkness. He is the joy of life. He will provide the strength we need to make it to the end. And he is a peace that passes understanding. We could live for so much more, but we lost ourselves in the desires of this world. And in just the right time, God stepped down into darkness and brings us out into his glorious light. Let's pray.